Hello. I just did something that was a little bit annoying. I was just 10 or 15 minutes into Bible study with you when I realized it wasn't recording. (laughs) So I've had a dress rehearsal here. Maybe that will make this even better. Uh, (laughs) We'll see. Welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard pastor here at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. And I am following along with the uh, Come Follow Me series, the schedule that's put out by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as Latter-day Saints read through the New Testament this year. And I'm offering you thoughts from a Bible church pastor's perspective. And today we are looking at the end of Jesus's earthly life, before the resurrection, okay? So we're looking at the crucifixion and how he dies in the flesh. Now, of course, this isn't the end of his human existence. His human existence continues perpetually. He was raised from the dead, never to die again, and he ascended into heaven with his human body. And he still exists in true humanity today, in addition to his nature of deity. But... Here we are looking at where he was crucified and buried, a momentous occasion. I want to focus on Joseph of Arimathea. I didn't get to that in my first run through uh, when I was talking to you, but actually not talking to you because it wasn't recording. And it took me like 10 or 15 minutes to talk through the resurrection or to the, the crucifixion event. And I didn't get to the burial yet. So I don't know how long this episode will end up being. You know, because... Every platform shows you how long this is before you start playing it, so you know how long this is. But here we go. Um, I want to read through the end of Matthew 27, well, toward the end of Matthew 27, and then jump over to Luke 23 to talk about Joseph of Arimathea, who buried Jesus in his tomb. But uh, I will read through Matthew 27, starting at verse 38, and then pause along the way to offer some thoughts, okay? That's the plan. So, Matthew 27, verse 38. It says, At that time two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The two robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. All right. Well, um, I'll pause there for now. You have Jesus being crucified between two robbers, three people being crucified in total, two robbers, one on the right and one on the left. And while this is happening, Jesus dying on the cross, we see that he's not only enduring physical pain, but he's enduring insults as those around him are mocking him during this event. You have these people who 
don't believe in him, who are mocking him from the ground, and they're saying, oh, if, if he would only come down from the cross, then we would believe, which is not true at all, by the way. You know, here the these men have nailed the Son of Man to a cross. They've put nails through his wrists and feet into wood, and they think, well, yeah, he's he's now stuck, and no person has ever been able to take himself down off a cross after being nailed to a cross. So if he were to do that, then we would believe, which again is just not true at all. He did many miracles throughout his life, and they continued to disbelieve. And uh, really one more miraculous event wasn't what they needed. What they needed was a heart of faith, starting with the fear of God. They had no fear of God at all. And so what, what does a miracle do for someone who is just stubborn at heart and committed to rebellion against his creator? Well, a miracle doesn't do anything because that person has to have a heart of faith. All right, that's the bottom line. But perhaps you noticed that not only were those on the ground mocking him, but those who were crucified with him were mocking him. It says in verse 44, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. And that's kind of like the last word we get in Matthew's gospel on these robbers. And your mind may be going to the thief on the cross who believed, because one of them did believe. And Jesus even told him, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, that's found in Luke's gospel. Luke is the only gospel that mentions that, that continues the story of one of those robbers and how he came to faith. Why didn't Matthew mention that? Well, uh, that wasn't something that Matthew was concerned about when he wrote his gospel. What you have are four gospel accounts, and we've talked about this, and I'm sure you've considered this before. You have four gospel accounts written by four different men who had four different audiences, and even though they had the same general purpose of magnifying the name of Jesus Christ and explaining the core details, the primary details of Jesus' existence and his work, they didn't have the same specific purposes because you have Mark writing to the Romans, you've got Matthew writing to Jews, uh, you, you just have different purposes. John writing way later. And, and because they're writing to different audiences and they have different specific purposes as far as what they're trying to communicate and how they're trying to say it, you get four Gospels that are a little bit different from one another, which is just really important to grasp and understand and acknowledge. It's actually extremely rare that we get all four Gospels sharing the same detail about anything, actually. Um, you have the feeding of the 5,000, which is in all four Gospels. You have the uh, resurrection and the crucifixion. Those are in all four Gospels. Uh, you have one more thing that's in all four Gospels that we'll get to here in just a little bit. But not a lot of things are in all four Gospels. Most of the time you have an event or a detail of an event that is exclusive to one or two or sometimes three Gospels, but rarely is it all four. And that's just pretty simple to understand for me. You've got four different men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who are writing with different purposes in mind, and so they write differently from one another. And yet there's amazing unity across all four. So it's, it's pretty cool. I, I find that to be an amazing aspect of the gospel accounts. Well, let's uh, continue reading in Matthew 27, dropping down to verse 45. It says, 
Now from the sixth hour, or noon, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour, or 3 p.m. So noon to 3 p.m., not usually a dark time. Well, this day, darkness fell upon the land. Verse 46. About the ninth hour, or 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Fascinating sequence of events, isn't it? You have supernatural signs and wonders taking place here with the darkness and the earthquake and whatnot. But you also have this statement from Jesus, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic. It's from Psalm 22, and it's rendered in English, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm, meaning it contains a prophecy about the Messiah. There's a messianic prophecy within that psalm. And this phrase, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is called out by Jesus on the cross as the fulfillment of that psalm. And there were those standing around, so not those on the cross, the robbers on the right and on the left, but those who were standing there, we don't have the detail of who they were, it's just some of those who were standing there. When they heard it, they interpreted it as, this man is calling for Elijah. So they really didn't know what they were talking about, did they? They were standing there thinking, Jesus is calling out, Elijah, if you're able, come back and take me off the cross and get me out of this bad situation. Well, that is not what Jesus was doing at all. Jesus doesn't need Elijah's help. Jesus uh, could call 10,000 angels, as he said in the garden. He doesn't need Elijah's help. But that's how they interpreted that. And then you have the one of them going and getting the sour wine and giving that to Jesus. And so with all this mocking and all these things that they're doing, they're actually fulfilling prophecy. It was prophesied about them that they would do such a thing. And uh, they're, they're doing it from a heart of unbelief and rejection of their Creator. But let's examine here the details of the miraculous events that happen. You had the earthquake, of course, the earth shook, and the rocks were split. So this is pretty violent. Not just a regular earthquake, but you got rock splitting, which I guess does happen in earthquakes, but maybe this was centralized to Jerusalem. But uh, but it was pretty violent. 
Okay, for rocks to split. That's pretty violent. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that's not because anybody was ripping it, and it would be very difficult to do so. That veil was not made to be torn. It was made to last. Well, why did the veil get torn in two, top to bottom? The veil was what separated in the temple the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, where the high priest, singular high priest, there was always only one in Israel, where he would enter year after year on the Day of Atonement. Only he could go, and he could only go once a year. It separated that area from the rest of the temple. Well, here it is being ripped top to bottom, signifying now that there is access for all people to meet with God in the holiest place. At the end of Hebrews chapter 4, it says that we can now come boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. Believers in Jesus Christ are able to go directly to God without an intermediary because Jesus is their intermediary. They don't need a human intermediary who's a creature like them. They can go to the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is their perfect mediator, and have direct access to God himself anywhere, anytime. Pretty amazing. And that's signified here with the ripping of the veil, the tearing of the veil from top to bottom the holiest place being exposed, and access being given to all people. Wow. But then you have this other amazing event. Verse 52, the tombs were opened, and those who had died among believers, it says bodies of the saints who had died, were resurrected. So these are people who were were justified by faith, who had believed in God, who had clung to his word, had hearts of faith, they feared God, those who were saints. They were resurrected, and they didn't just resurrect and then die again, but they went into the holy city, Jerusalem, and they appeared to many people. They're talking to people. It wasn't like zombie apocalypse stuff. It was like, they're really resurrected, and they're having conversations with people. Now, they eventually died again, Matthew doesn't see fit to continue following them throughout the rest of their lives as they have been resurrected and died again later. He doesn't take us all the way through that. That's not his point. His point is to emphasize the supernatural event that happened because there were many, and that's just a note he's making along the way. But like Lazarus, Jesus' friend who was raised from the dead, Lazarus died again, even though we don't have that documented. We know these men died again, or these men and women died again. But this resurrection was a sign from God of what was going on, that that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man. He is who he claimed to be. And that is what the centurion and other guards conclude. In verse 54, not only the centurion, but those who were keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake... And the things that were happening, these are pretty amazing things, right? But they're beholding not just the earthquake, but the things that were happening. They became frightened, and they said, truly, this is the Son of God, or this was the Son of God. I don't think they have hearts of faith here. I think they're merely acknowledging facts of what was happening. It doesn't seem to me that they're born again through this, but that they're saying, wow, he is who he said he was and uh, probably had some humanly remorse over that, okay? But not true saving faith. 
Well, let's go to the burial. It's not just the crucifixion that we have an account of, but we have an account of the burial. And we'll jump over to Luke for this. Luke chapter 23, verses 50 to 56. I'm going to take a drink real quick. That's better. All right. Luke 23, starting at verse 50. It says, And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. What an event here. I mean, just everything about the death and burial of Jesus is unique. It's different. And it's all very, very interesting. Well, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, he's the one who asks for the body and the one who gets the body and the one who takes care of Jesus' body after the crucifixion. Let's talk a little bit about this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. I'm using some notes from a Good Friday service. I think it was last year's Good Friday service. Uh, I talked about Joseph of Arimathea that Good Friday, and um, I'm repurposing those notes for today. Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels. So going back to that idea of it's rare that something is mentioned in all four Gospels, well, Joseph of Arimathea is one of those rare guys who gets mentioned in all four Gospels. Arimathea is a small town or city. I mean, Joseph is the only reason we know of that city. It's not mentioned anywhere else. Likely, it was a town about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. So in the greater Jerusalem area. In Matthew's gospel, we find out that he was wealthy. Here, of course, um, with other gospel accounts, uh, in Luke, it says he was a member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin, which was like the Supreme Court in Israel, 70 judges. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, one of those prominent judges in Israel, and wealthy. He owned some property, we find out, some nice property, and was just a prominent man from all that we can tell in the gospel accounts. He was very prominent in Israel. He was a good and righteous man who believed in Jesus. He was a secret disciple of Jesus. We just read in Luke's gospel that he did not consent to their plan to crucify Jesus, but he seemed to be a believer in Jesus' claims and in his miracles. And we find out in the gospel accounts that he was a good and righteous man. But because of peer pressure, he did keep his faith secret. In Matthew's gospel, it said he had become a disciple of Christ, but he was a secret disciple. He was somebody who wasn't out in the open about his enthusiasm for Jesus Christ, which I do think is a bit sad, yet as long as there's still breath in somebody's lungs, there's still time, right? Well, what was his reasoning for being so secretive about all this? Why did he go about it that way? We actually get a hint in John's gospel. This is John chapter 12, 42 and 43. It says, Many even of the rulers believed in him, Jesus. 
It has to include Joseph of Arimathea. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So, like many of us, Joseph of Arimathea had fear of man problems. He put the fear of man ahead of the fear of God. He was scared of the Pharisees and the authority they could wield in his life to put him out of the synagogue and basically publicly shame him. Associating with Jesus publicly like this would have been like cultural suicide. He would lose his status, his relationships. He would lose his prominence in Israel. He wouldn't be on the Sanhedrin anymore. And so he was a secret disciple. And it seems like here at the crucifixion is where Joseph overcame his fear of man and went full on to publicly confessing Jesus. I mean, he goes to Pilate and asks for the body, even. In Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel also, it tells us that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Like any good Jew, he was praying specifically for the Messiah to come and to rule and to have his kingdom. And this is prophesied in the Old Testament, and he wanted this day to come. And it appears that here, after the crucifixion or at the crucifixion of Christ, that Joseph began to understand something about that in God's program, that he was understanding that Jesus has come and he has inaugurated a new covenant and that there is a kingdom coming. But this first coming of Christ wasn't for him to rule on the face of the earth like a lion, but to suffer as the lamb. And he's calling people, to come out and confess him as Lord and to live for him in this age. Remember Jesus saying, those who confess me before men, I will confess before my Father, and if they deny me, he will deny them. So I think Joseph is probably getting that at this point in his life, and he's now coming out of the closet, as it were, as someone who's a disciple of Jesus. So let me walk you through the order of events here. We just read it in Luke, but let me give you some notes here on how this all went down, taking what we have from all four Gospels and putting it together. So Joseph of Arimathea wanted the body of Jesus, and he asked Pilate, like we read in Luke 23. He asked Pilate for the body, and the body was given to him. All four Gospels describe that. Now, bodies of crucified people were ordinarily given to family members. In crimes against the state, bodies would be disposed of by the state itself. So this is a pretty bold move. It's unusual. Joseph of Arimathea coming to Pilate and saying, hey, can I have the body? And in the Gospel of Mark, it actually says that he, quote, gathered up the courage. So it it was an event that took bravery, courage, for him to go forward and ask for the body of Jesus. After he got the body of Jesus, he prepared the body with linen and spices along with Nicodemus. This is described in John's Gospel, and only in John's Gospel. Nicodemus was another ruler of the Jews, and he was also hesitant to follow Jesus. Perhaps you remember Nicodemus in John's Gospel all the way back in John 3. And it was customary in Jewish culture to provide a proper burial that involved many spices, Uh, So what they were doing here wasn't unusual. Asking for the body and getting the body was unusual, but then what they did with the body was not unusual. To cover up the smell of a decaying body, spices, that was common. Uh, Linen wrappings 
were what were used, according to John's gospel. Not a shroud, but linen wrappings. There is a difference between the two. And so when you hear about the shroud that covered Jesus' body, well, remember that John's gospel says it was linen wrappings. So anybody who claims they have that shroud, uh, that's not right. And they had to move quickly because the Sabbath day was about to begin. So the Sabbath day, there has to be rest. As we read in Luke's gospel, the women also were involved in preparing the body with spices and whatnot, but they rested on the Sabbath. This was not a Sabbath day activity. It was, they were still going to observe the Sabbath, and they had to move quickly to get this done. And there was a nearby tomb provided. He put the body in a tomb he had made for himself. Joseph of Arimathea did. Perhaps this was in a cave. Perhaps it was in a garden near Calvary where Jesus was crucified. There's an interesting historical study you can do on that, but it's relatively inconclusive. It's possible that this was a temporary measure because this was a very busy weekend, as we would say in America. It was a holiday weekend, right? You got the Passover going on, and there was just a lot happening in Jewish culture around this time of year, a lot of festivals so you got the Sabbath, you got a holiday, there's just a lot going on. Tombs in Israel would often be reused. So when another family member died, the previous family member's body would be taken out and put into a bone box. But this was a new tomb. Matthew, Luke, and John all say that this was a new tomb. And so this wasn't a reused tomb, it was a new tomb. It could have been temporary, like I said, in their minds that they were just going to do this for a bit. But either way, he was placed in a new tomb. And it had not been defiled by another dead body. According to the law, the, a dead body defiles whatever it touches. And so a used tomb would have been a defiled place for Jesus to be, but this was a new one. That's important to recognize. The men, after putting Jesus' body in the tomb, would have then rolled a heavy disc-shaped stone in front of the entrance. That's the common practice of that day. A very heavy stone would have taken several men to move, so it's likely they had other people with them who were helping them, perhaps servants. Since these are prominent men in Israel, they likely had servants, and it was just a big stone they would have used for that. And the two Marys were there at that time. Matthew's Gospel talks about this, and of course in Luke's Gospel we just read about women who were involved there too. Matthew tells us that the Pharisees heard of the place, where Jesus was buried, and asked Pilate if they could secure it. Of course, they were thinking that the disciples would come and steal the body, and so they wanted to go make sure it was sealed, that there would be no one tampering with the body. And they were permitted to do this. They went and asked Pilate if they could do it. You can read about this in Matthew's Gospel. And Pilate said, yeah, go, go secure it however you'd like. And they set a seal on the stone they would know if it was tampered with. And they likely set a Roman soldier there. I mean, that's just what it meant to secure a tomb. You put a Roman soldier on duty and you set a seal. So they did all of that. What an event, being buried there. Well, Jesus being placed in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea being a rich, prominent man, this fulfilled Bible prophecy. This whole event of Jesus being buried there was actually something that was prophesied by Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, 9, it says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. 
Isaiah 53 is an amazing passage that talks about the death of Jesus Christ, also speaks here of the burial, and in verse 10 it goes on to speak of the resurrection, that his days would be prolonged and he would see his children. But here with the burial, it says that his grave was assigned with wicked men. He was crucified with two robbers, and I'm sure that the plan was just that his body would be disposed of by the state. Yet, he ended up being with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea is who he ended up being with in his tomb, a new tomb, and it was sealed by the Roman guards. Wow. Well, that's pretty amazing. Well, we uh, then know what happened. Gloriously, Jesus was resurrected. The Roman guards and their seal, that couldn't prevent Jesus from resurrecting. The Pharisees, trying as they might, they couldn't prevent Jesus from resurrecting. He rose from the dead, praise God, and he is alive. He is to be worshipped forever and ever as a living Savior, not a dead Savior, whose you know, image on the cross is what we are left with, but we have an empty cross, we have an empty tomb, we have a living Savior who functions continually as he lives to be our high priest day in and day out for those of us who believe and are saved by faith in the biblical gospel. It's amazing. So let me conclude with some thoughts here and kind of tie Joseph of Arimathea into your modern-day application. What do, we, what do we make of this? Well, Joseph, as far as we know, is the only person who spent time exclusively with the lifeless body of Jesus. We don't have any picture in the gospel of Joseph spending time with Jesus while he was alive, like we do with Nicodemus, for instance. So Nicodemus was there, and the women were there with the lifeless body of Jesus, but they had time with Jesus before. Joseph of Arimathea, it seems, uh, according to the biblical record, that he's spending his time exclusively with the lifeless body of Jesus Christ. Consider that experience, what that must have been like for him. He had time to privately behold the body, this body that was marred more than any man. That's what we're told about the death of Christ. He was beaten beyond recognition. And that's what Joseph is beholding, as he's there quietly with the body of Christ. Considering the significance, perhaps, Joseph was at that time, of Jesus' statements as he maybe heard them firsthand if he was in the crowds, or heard these sayings that were passed along to him, that Jesus said, or I guess it's starting with John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Maybe that's running through Joseph's mind as he's looking at the body of Christ. Or when Jesus said, This is my body, broken for you. Joseph is there looking at the broken body of Christ. It says in the Gospels that Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer and be killed. Perhaps he had heard that, that Jesus was teaching his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer and be killed. And there he is, seeing the result of the suffering and the killing. Maybe he was making the connections in that moment that 
Paul makes for us in Romans 5, 9, that he suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. That Jesus died in our place for our sins, that we would be saved from the wrath of God through him. God demonstrating his own love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe Joseph in this moment is really coming to grips with the gospel. We know that the disciples of Jesus, save Judas, but 11 of them, they were taking this long to come around and understand the gospel, right? Like, even toward the end of Jesus's earthly life, they were thinking, no, he won't die. You know, this is the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One. And finally, they're coming to grips with it. And maybe Joseph of Arimathea is in the same position. He's coming to grips with the gospel and saying, this is truly the Son of Man who can save me from my sins, apart from my religious status, my affiliations in Jerusalem and in Israel that have made me such a prominent man. He is more important. What he has done is of greater significance than any of my religious efforts, than any of my relation relationships or, or the status I've built. Maybe at this time, He's finally coming to grips with the significance of the gospel and placing his hope that as he's burying this body, that the body's going to walk out of that tomb because Jesus also taught that he would be resurrected. And so if if Joseph maybe is thinking about all that Jesus taught about his suffering and the crucifixion, maybe he's also thinking about the promise of resurrection and he's burying him in hope. What an amazing time in Joseph's life. Well, he had to overcome the fear of associating with Jesus, didn't he? I mean, he he had to get over this fear of man stuff. And he had to drop his social relationships as his priority, to see Jesus as his priority. He was brought to this moment by God himself, this critical time in his life, this point of decision where he had to see the gospel as most important. He had to see his relationship with Jesus, his personal relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus, as most important. And so I wonder, do you see the significance of Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection in the same way that perhaps Joseph was coming to see it in that moment? Do you have those competing priorities in your life of people and, I don't know, statuses within a religion or within your community that cause you to be a secret disciple? Maybe you listen to me secretively. Maybe you listen to these things and you're really interested, but you're you're keeping it secret that you are a Bible-believing Christian you need to come to a place of decision like Joseph of Arimathea, where you see that your personal relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ is the most important thing, and your public confession of Jesus in front of other people is more important than your social status, relationships, your job, even your own family. Remember, Jesus taught on this too. The one who loves His own family members, more than Jesus, is not worthy of Jesus. Following Jesus, and it begins with faith, takes sacrifice all the way through. It's it's a sacrifice. 
you are putting all other things on the altar saying, take them, Lord, if, if that's your will. But I want you more than anything else. You are more important to me than anything. That is the place of true faith. That's where I believe Joseph of Arimathea showed up, and that's where I want you to show up in life, is that point where you say, Jesus is more important to me than anything else. For Joseph, it was his religion and his social status. For you, it could be those same two things. It could be other things. But Jesus has to be more important. Well, I hope this has caused you to think a little bit, and I hope you have some questions, and you'll reach out with those questions. I'd love to talk to you about those. Thanks for listening today to a little bit of a longer episode, and uh, hope this has been helpful. Continue to read God's Word and grow closer to Him by faith. God bless.